Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duroc, and today we are talking about neurodiversity and cancer. And some statistics show that as many of us as 20% are neurodivergent. So how does that affect our experience of going through cancer. So to answer that, I have two amazing guests with me. Neil has been on the podcast before and we haven't scared him off. He's back again (laughs) and he's dyslexic. And that affected how he experienced having a brain tumour in his 20s. And we also have Dr. Shah Goodwin with us, who was diagnosed as autistic two years after she went through treatment and now realises that she was masking during that time. So welcome. Thank you so much, Shah, for being here and Neil. Shah, can I um, ask what was going on in your life when you were first diagnosed? So life was pretty hectic um, for us. Both my husband and I were working full time. Um, so I was re- working in research within the NHS. Um, so I was in the office five days a week when that was such a thing. Um, also, I'm a mum to two great kids, um, but they were in two different schools that were 25 minutes drive from each other. So we had quite a lot of logistical planning that we had to get through on a day to day. Um, and to make sure we didn't have any help with any of our childcare. We have no family nearby. So it was, we worked out how to do it and plan it and it was fine as long as nothing went wrong. Um, I was also writing at my PhD in the evenings and at weekends. Um, I was, it was a part-time PhD. I'd spent many years writing and I was in the finally in the uh, many years working on it, but I was finally in the write-up stage. Um, and uh, my Viva had been booked. And we just moved house, so I was busy decorating and excited about the future, um, and uh, and that was all right. And then I was diagnosed with cancer back in November 2019. Wow! I mean, your life was so—I mean, one jam-packed, but also what I hear in there is sort of teetering on the edge of you know yes. everything planned and organised, but also like if something goes wrong, there wasn't oh, a lot of I- bandwidth. Absolutely. I mean, if we had like, if the car broke down, then that was like, literally like, okay, right, well, what do we do? You know, the email, um, phone calls from my husband going to go, right, you go there, I'll be here, we'll go this way, I'll do this first, I'll pick them up first, then pick them up, we'll call the school and all that. It was a bit of a nightmare, but we managed it and it worked fine. But yeah, cancer didn't really help matters much. It does. It throws everything up in the air. And so for you, you described masking during treatment. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, so masking is um, it's usually a kind of a learnt way of being sort of less you, like less autistic, to be more okay with, uh, to make other people more comfortable being around you and therefore a bit more accepting of you. It's, um, I learned to do this from quite an early age as a sort of survival technique. So I would learn responses to questions that were deemed more appropriate um, by many people. And I learned what not to say. Um, and whilst now I'm trying to learning to unmask and do the opposite, and uh, it's still very much a work in progress. But when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I didn't know I was autistic at the time. Um, I 
looking back at well when I was going through it I felt I couldn't understand why a lot of people struggled didn't struggle with the things that I was struggling with um but uh, I worked in research in the NHS I loved being around hospitals loved hospital TV, uh, dramas ER is one of my favorite TV shows watched the whole 15 series made my husband watch it with me not long ago some things have not aged well um but uh, it's still a great watch but so I thought I would be okay. I thought I'd be fine. I thought when I first went in for my initial, um, uh, when I had to go in to get the, the check, so, you know, the mammogram, the um, biopsy and ultrasound, I was like, it's fine. I know the hospital. I know what I'm doing. It's great. I can do this. But when I, I then realized early on when I was actually at the diagnostic appointment that I needed to learn to, to kind of dissociate in order to get through it, um, I basically could not allow myself to feel. Uh, I knew that if I allowed myself to feel, I would cry and I didn't know if I could stop. So it was kind of became a process of like, I would put my barriers up, put this mask on throughout all my appointments and I would push my feelings to like the darkest depths of my mind and just not feel so I could get through them. And I would do this time and time again for every appointment I had. But I was like, I was the model patient to uh, healthcare professionals there. So if they sort of said to me, you need to have this procedure done, I'd be like, yep, okay. And then if they say, you need to go and have this done now, I'd be like, right, okay, now. But my head would be swimming with questions, with worries, with concerns. But I just was like, don't feel, don't feel, push it aside. Um, and I just kept doing that all the way through my treatment until after active treatment finish, I broke. I think it's the best way of describing it. Everything I've been pushing away came flooding back. Um, and uh, and I was exhausted, tried to process it all. And that was just as lockdown hit. Oh, wow. You know, that's really powerful the way that you've described that. And on the one hand, hearing it, that kind of stoic, not feeling, going through, pushing things away, you know, you can really see how that can help you take one step after the other like into those appointments that you don't want to be there every part of you is you know sort of screaming on the inside um and but that comes at such a cost yeah absolutely it was even just trying to process the appointments themselves I found it really hard to just understand what I was being told and so it was just kind of just take the information as much as I could I'll deal with it later um, which a lot of it was, well, I'll just deal with this later. But then obviously it's such a, you hear that whole kind of uh, conveyor belt feeling as you go through cancer treatment, you just keep going and going and just going until you kind of fall off at the end. And that's exactly what I did. I fell off. And um, then it was suddenly kind of that realisation and the time to start processing it all, that it all just was very difficult to do. Can you take me to that moment of of realising that things had broken, that the, that coping strategy was no longer working for you. Yeah, it was. So it was. It was at a time where it was quite difficult. So lockdown had just started. So my kids were at home, home being homeschooled. My husband was on furlough, and I was no longer needing to attend any more appointments. And at that point, it was. It kind of made me feel like I was almost. My recovery was 
uh, I had an audience to it so that they were watching them, watching me go through this. But every I couldn't escape it either because I couldn't go anywhere. All the things that you would potentially normally be able to access, um, I just wasn't able to do. I couldn't even just go out and go for a walk by myself or go for a drive or anything like that. It was just being very, so it was kind of very confronting of just having to just deal with it in my mind. Um, I did start seeing a couple of months after that when I was realising that I needed to do something about this. I started seeing a counsellor who was um, from a local uh, cancer charity um, who's been brilliant. Who I still see, still see now, um, many years later. Um, and that was what was, I, I needed that help to help me process what I was going through from somebody who understands what I was going through. So, yeah. And at that point, did you and your therapist discuss being autistic? Had that oh, no, come no. up or? No, not at all. No, that, I was completely clueless on that for quite a while. <laughs> so, so what was that like when you, when you realised um, it was quite, quite. Uh, it's weird. Looking at the time, it was a complete shock. I didn't expect to to think about it, even though my son was diagnosed um, autistic when he was eight, um, and I'd researched around that. I thought I knew what autism was, was and I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm fine." Didn't ever ever consider myself uh, that I could be autistic. Um, but now, if I look back. It feels like, gosh, actually, it's frighteningly obvious that I was autistic from a very young age. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was quite it was quite a shock when I started realised. Um, I watched a documentary that kind of made it feel a little bit quite familiar, and a test was mentioned on it. So I did that test, and I thought, oh, this will be. This is just. I'll just see what it does. So I took the test, and I scored high, and I was like, oh, okay. So without saying a word, I handed my husband the test. He hadn't watched the documentary. I handed him the test, just pointed at the heading and then pointed at my score and said, you do it. He did it. He scored low. I was like, oh, okay, hold on. So I got my son who was diagnosed, but him to do it. He scored high. So I was like, okay. So my daughter, who we were thinking possibly she's autistic, she scored high as well. So I was like, okie dokie, <laughs> something's going on here. So that started a very big deep dive into all things autism. Um, and uh, things, yeah, things went from there, really. When you got that official diagnosis, how did that feel? It was, the, the diagnosis itself was very validating. The process before I got the diagnosis was very confronting. So when I started to realise that I could, I was thinking, oh, I might be autistic, and I thought, I'm going to, as a researcher, I thought, right, I need to find out some more information here. So I would read about um, a lot of other like social media posts from other autistic people and was reading books written by late diagnosed autistic people and and I was reading th- like paragraphs thinking, oh my goodness, you've written this about me, mm. but you've never met me. And I would have to put the book down and just be like tears down my face going, this, no, this, how does this even happen? You don't know who I am. And you've just literally written about my life in that paragraph is absolutely me to a T. And so I'd find it quite, I was quite confronting. And then every time I look back, I would be, uh, things that happened, I'd be like, oh, that's why I reacted that way for that thing. Oh, okay, now that makes sense. And 
I mean, to, to be honest, I don't. I used when I was a kid. I used to. Um, I like to put my books into an order. So you think, oh yeah, alphabetical, colour coded. No, I went for ISBN number. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that never picked up anything. I'm not on anyone's radar. Then possibly they might be like very excited when I got a new book and had to reorder it all because it was all done by hand. Amazing. Yeah. Can so, I ask you how old were you when you were diagnosed? So, uh, well, no, so I was only diagnosed last year. So last October, so it's just been over a year that I've been confirmed autistic, but I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 40. So, yeah, so it's um, it's a lot of life of not realising you are autistic to kind of have to go back through. But it's been, a, it's one of the, it's the best experience I can honestly say that I've ever had is fully becoming to learn who I am and, and, what I, I don't have to blame myself for things anymore. Mm. I don't have to assume. Oh, and there's this, I, I can't for the life of me remember. My memory is shocking at the moment, but I can't for the life remember who said it. But somebody had said that you're a perfectly ordinary autistic person and not a failed neurotypical. And I just thought, oh yeah, no, that's that's good. I am just perfectly ordinary autistic. <laughs> I <good>. love <laughs> I can't that. Who said it. I can see that being so powerful and that is such a compassionate response, isn't it? Like we often talk on this podcast about how we can be so hard on ourselves, but that is like such a validating that we're not having to adhere to some other standard. It's really, you know, kind of where where we are. We get to make that our own and and I love that what you said about sort of coming into your own and understanding yourself I really really relate to that as well now you're working to expand this knowledge even further so your project that you're doing at the Mm -hmm. moment is about autism and breast cancer can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, absolutely. So I'm the lead researcher and co-investigator on um, a project called the Autistic Experiences of Breast Cancer Research Project, which is funded by Breast Cancer Now. Um, and I, I find when I was researching for the proposal that there was such a lack of research about autistic experience. Well, there was. So what I did find was that there was uh, you'd find about the perspectives of healthcare professionals or family or caregivers' perspective, but not um for the autistic person themselves and as autistic people we're, we're often judged by how people see us so how our external presentation is without the thought about what's going on side on the inside our internal processes of whether that could be cognitive or sensory or trauma related and with with um, our research project what we're doing is we're wanting to ask autistic people directly about their experiences of um, diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer so we're doing that by the project split into four different parts. Um, the first part is an autoethnography, which is what I'm currently doing, which will be looking at um, my experience of breast cancer when I didn't know I was autistic. Um, and then we're going to be doing some interviews with autistic people who have had a diagnosis of breast cancer and subsequent treatment um, and find out what worked well and what didn't. And if there was any solutions of what could be done to make it better. Um, then we'll be doing a survey which will be comparing responses from autistic and non-autistic people and then each part is being informed by the previous findings and then finally we bring all that learning together 
to um, create guidelines for some for healthcare professionals to better support autistic patients and recommendations for autistic people who are currently going through treatment to share with their medical team. And we also have a lived experience advisory group of autistic individuals who have breast cancer diagnosis to co-design important elements of the study and to make sure that we're asking the right questions in the right way. Brilliant. I am so glad that you're doing this work. I think it is so needed and I know that you're doing it in a, a specific area, which is breast cancer, yes. but I imagine yes. so much of what you'll learn and discover will be extrapolated out from there um, yes. and could potentially help so many people. Can you tell me what are some of the specific challenges that autistic people face with cancer? So there's been research that has shown that there are many barriers to healthcare uh, generally for autistic people. So if you think about like even the initial GP presentation, um, so when you need to contact your GP, you have to use the phone. And using the phone is really difficult for a lot of autistic people. Sometimes it's impossible. Um, I know from my own experience that I have delayed contacting the doctor because I had to use the phone and you just think, oh, I just don't want to, uh, you know, and just put it off. And then you get to the point where you go, well, now I've got more than one thing to ask and it's uh, well, do, can I do two things in one appointment I'm not sure and then end up thinking oh, hopefully it'll just get better by itself you know those types of things um, and then when you look at being in a GP or hospital environment the sensory related um, situation there can be a real nightmare thinking about the noise the lighting smells the amount of people um, for me lighting uh, lights bright sunlight is my nemesis I'm the one in the summer looking forward to winter because it's just too bright, sunglasses on. I go around the house closing the blinds, <laughs> muttering to myself, it's too, too bright. But there's looking at thinking about procedures as well. So things like, uh, again, if I think about with breast cancer, you've got mammograms, ultrasounds, biopsies, MRIs, CTs, you know, it goes on and on and the, comp the sensory complications related to that. And not knowing what's going to happen during appointments, um, it's really difficult knowing what's it going to feel like, what's it going to be like. Um, how long will it last, the treatment themselves, side effects. And one of the biggest things about cancer is the amount of time and how much interaction you have to have with healthcare professionals, hospitals and GPs. Um, health, uh, you're also then having to think about the healthcare professionals' own knowledge of autism. Mm. Uh, is, it out, is it outdated? Is it misinformation? Are you going to have to try and advocate and educate whilst you're dealing with what's happening with you at the same time? And it's, that's a lot to have to deal with. Um, and if some of these barriers that I've mentioned, and there are more, um, if you think about them for one appointment and what that must be like, but with cancer, there's so many appointments, so many procedures, treatments, interactions with the healthcare professionals, that it just becomes a cumulative effect. And then if you add things, additional things like side effects from treatment that requires hospitalization, and that is compounded by the barriers, such as sensory sensitivities that you kind of maybe not expecting, on top of everything else and metastatic cancer requiring ongoing treatment and hospital visit, uh, visits and the cumulative effect just keeps growing and growing. Yeah and there's, there's also the double whammy of being under these circumstances that are incredibly um, overwhelming mm. and not having access to the coping mechanisms that maybe made things a little bit easier. So having, you know, maybe 
a busy day at work, but you come home and you really decompress. You don't have access to that in the hospital. Or perhaps when you get home, you're now so fatigued that you can't, you know, do the things outside that you would have normally have done to reset and, you know, kind of regulate really how you're feeling. So I can see how that would be on on all different levels. And what you said about lighting, I Mm. really relate to that. So my thing, I do like sunlight, but um, overhead light feels like someone's pressing on the top of my head. And Mm. my ex used to come into the living room, she'd snap on the lights and I would react as if she had just hit me. I was like, why? Why would you do this to me? And she was like, but I can't see. And I was like, that's not important. (laughs) What's important is the top of my head doesn't feel oppressed by this light. And I remember working in an office and I didn't have access to natural lights and it was those overhead, you know, ones. Mm -hmm. And one day I went in and the light right above the desk was off. And I, it was like I was bathed in this pool of peace. I got so much done that day. You can actually feel like you can, when you're in, in a light and they turn, you know, in a lighted situation and they turn the light off, you can feel the pain switch off. Mm. It's, it's actually like, it's, a, it's just like somebody switches it off and you go, oh. Yes. <laughs> it yeah, and, absolutely. And then the guy came to fix it and I started crying at work begging him not to fix it and he just looked at me like what is your problem um and of course like they they weren't gonna you know (laughs) accommodate that um but you know I think that those things are incredibly powerful and and that's just one thing at work on one day but when you think of being in a hospital setting, you also add in the sounds, the sleep deprivation, the hormonal disturbance, the effect of treatments. There's so much yeah. happening. I'd love to bring Neil in here. Neil, can you tell us about when you were diagnosed as dyslexic? Yeah, sure. Um, I was diagnosed officially when I was 27, although I had cancer, but I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 25. Um, but I'd always thought I was, well, since I was an adult, I thought I was. Um, and um, I had this kind of ongoing thing where I was like, but am I just like, I love reading, I love reading books, um, but my spelling's a bit all over the place and um, I'm not that good at writing sometimes and I've never been academic. So um, yeah, I, I had questions about like, am I dyslexic enough? Mm. or am I dyslexic in the right way I mean when I look at a page it, it, I can I can get through it it's still a bit difficult sometimes but so it was a real dilemma and um when I did go for the official assessment it was an incredible relief to be like actually I was I wasn't sort of I wasn't wrong I I, I wasn't just being sort of hard on myself actually I am dyslexic and it, it explained so much of my time in school and my difficulty with spelling and and just you know so much of my experience yeah do you think people misunderstand dyslexia a hundred percent and i think i did as well because um i had no idea that there were different sort of presentations i thought there was this you were dyslexic and you couldn't read and and that was what dyslexia was but my main um 
thing with dyslexia was, di was disorganization, which I had no idea was part of it. So when I was a kid, I was described as sort of dreamy and I was disorganized. I, I remember I came home from school with someone else's trousers on or something like that. You know, I was just <laughs> all over the place. And um, and obviously when you're at school, especially as a boy, um, a little boy, the teachers absolutely hated that and would say that I was stupid, that I was slow, that I was, I was bright, but just not very switched on. And, you know, those messages really sort of stick to you but um but yeah i had no idea that that was part of it and as an adult i've become almost hyper disorganized hyper organized to compensate for being disorganized um so i've got like multiple diaries and spreadsheets because like i almost have that feeling of like i i hate that feeling of being all over the place and i've taken that really to heart when people have um kind of had a go at me really for that so um yeah, I definitely think people aren't aware of how big a range there is there and how um, different presentations there can be, how some people, it, it's it's definitely, I mean, it's similar to cancer. It's not like there's one sort of type of dyslexia and that's it. Similar to all different neurodivergent like um, adaptations and, and diagnoses that, that it just seems to be a spectrum and you can have bits of something and and yeah i think it was yeah i think i think it's really um misunderstood i'm only speaking for the dyslexic part that i know about but um but it seems that way with with all different types of neurodivergence and how did that affect you when you had your brain tumor so um I was very, very lucky in that um, I moved back with my folks um, and my parents sort of helped me um, with appointments um, and organizing stuff. I felt like all of my energy was going into just getting through what I was going through. And it was awful what I was like the surgery and then the radiotherapy. And I was just concentrating on that. And I was very lucky to have the sort of admin stuff taken away from me certainly while I was going through treatment um, because that would have just felt like too much. Um, after treatment, when I'm going for follow-ups and further sort of treatment on, on side effects, um, that feeling of having to advocate for myself. And I think everybody knows how disorganized the NHS is. Um, they are wonderful. They saved my life, but they're a complete mess sometimes. So having to constantly follow up and and advocate for myself. And I mean, that feeling of just kind of, I'm like, well, why am I booking my scan appointment? Like someone else should be booking my scan appointment. And why am I I'm having to do this? And like that kind of like frustration, I guess, um, in the follow-up stages. Um, there was definitely, um, I really related to the masking thing as well that you were talking about where, there was definitely moments where when I'd go into appointments and, and my um, sort of my health, my treatment and everything wasn't as clear cut. So there was a moment where they were saying, you know, um, it's up to you if you have chemotherapy and um, we don't think you need it, but you need to decide. And it was very sort of nuanced. And, and I'd go into appointments and with my mum. And about half an hour in, my mum would be like, can we just stop? Neil, Neil, do you understand what's going on? And and I remember this one time really vividly, and I was just like, I don't have a clue. But because of 
not wanting to seem like I'm stupid and not wanting to seem like I'm not understanding. I was just nodding at all this really medical jargon that, and I'm not a medical person, I had no idea what they were saying. But because of that, like not wanting to be almost like outed, I was like, oh yeah, 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 cool. Yeah, okay, yeah. And sitting there having no idea. So like not having someone kind of break it down and explain it to me and and in a way that I could just understand it. That makes so much sense when you're talking about that as a form of masking, right? Because as a child, you were, you know, said horrible things to you, which weren't true, but they still had an impact. And there you are, you know, with... I mean, from the outside looking at that situation, you have every reason. You're going through a lot. You have something going on literally with your brain. And there would be all the understanding, but you're still using that kind of masking and being a bit tough on yourself because you don't want to be stupid or perceived that way. Um, So I can really see how that would have fed into that experience. How did you start to undo that and unlink those things? Well, well, the diagnosis was really helpful. Um, and um, once I had the diagnosis, not I speak to a few, quite a few people, and, and they um, they aren't aware of this. And I'm, someone might need to double check um, exactly what what the government's rules are now. But I think it was 2018 or 2019. I did a access to work grant. Um, and that helped um, me with some technology for my computer. So I got sort of a band so that when I'm especially, and I think that was another thing that having cancer kind of exacerbated my dyslexia. So because I'd get really fatigued, I'd then struggle to read a bit more. So having like a, a band across the screen where I could follow what was going on, where I could follow everything was was really, really helpful. Um, and this access to work grant was free. Um, and I think it's a scheme to sort of help neurodivergent people get the sort of help that they need in terms of um, workplaces. So I got the computer help and then I got a, another really helpful thing because what I probably would have done is got given the software, not really knowing how to use it and then never got the best out of it. But I had um, someone do calls with me and go through it and get me to do it on the screen so that they could see what that I could use it okay, which was really, really helpful and just a person to speak to, as opposed to a big instruction manual to tell me how to do it, which probably wouldn't have gone well. The really, really helpful thing was um, I had some coaching from this um, company called Genius Within, um, and they were absolutely fantastic. And there was so, again, with the masking, there was so many things where I was like, this is what normal people do. So this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, I had like, I had five or six people's diaries all in my diary in a month for you. So it just, I mean, it honestly just looked like chaos. I hated looking at it, but I thought that's what I was supposed to do. So they were like, well, where do you see time? Do you, how far away is a week? Oh, it's not that far away. How far is away a month? Oh, it's ages away. Well, why are you doing a month then? Maybe just do a week. And why are you doing other people's diaries? Just do your, like, all these little things and i was like oh right okay um with spelling i was like i i vividly remember like especially when i can't spell something so tomato is a word i can't i really struggle to spell that and in my head 
I'd have this chat, almost like monks chanting at me, like, or football fans chanting the the letters, and it would be really stressful, and I, I wouldn't know what was going on. So it was almost like a different way of doing that, was reading through the emails like it was music. So I really like like rap and hip hop. So reading it through and then being like, well, that doesn't sound right. Like if that was a song, it, it doesn't sound good. So, oh, oh, there's a comma that needs to be there. Oh, okay, there's like three of the same word there. Um, and that proved really helpful as well in, in sort of undoing this sort of, I have to do grammar and spelling like everybody else does it. And really just finding my own way with stuff, just um, like when I do, I do some um, some um, in-person sort of um, lectures and things like that and uh, facilitate the, um, programs. And I'll, I'll put, um, you know, some colored cards with my own handwriting on them because I find it easier to read. Um, instead of this big like notes function in PowerPoint, which is tiny, and I thought, well, that's what normal people do. So I'm sitting there going like that and struggling to get myself across apart as opposed to just having some bullet points that like encourage me instead of make me feel like I'm back in that like eight year old not being able to do it mindset really. Oh, there's so much in there. I love that. Like looking at what you've written and going, okay, if it was a song, <laughs> if it was a yeah. rap song, does it work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine. Um, and and you're right now training to be a therapist. Yeah, I'm in my last year of um, training at the moment. So I'm due to qualify in March. And there's been a lot of interesting bits that I've done within my course, which have a lot of crossover within um sort of neurodivergence and um i actually did a a project last year on um uh like a project presentation on on um the neurodivergent therapists like um and 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 how that um often with other neurodivergent people how that's affected them in their lives and it was really quite heartbreaking because i remember like i did um i i had a a sample of not on neurodivergent people and then i put them through like a, a, a like a therapy test thing on, on happiness really and confidence and sort of markers like that and the disparity between the adults who were non-neurodivergent and neurodivergent was just startling and um there was some really really like intelligent smart people work there was someone i, I spoke to working in government um and um, they still believe that they're stupid, that they're not very clever, that most people around them are more clever than them, um, that um, I, I spoke to someone with ADHD where they were like, well, everybody is kind of going through life a bit better than me and I'm not you know, doing as well and I'm a bit much for people sometimes, like all of these, and it was really like mm. childlike responses that they'd held on to. Um, and one of the things that, um, was really, really interesting for me when I learned it was um, one of the modalities I'm learning is called uh, transactional analysis. And one of the like theories within that um, is this life script theory, where um, between the ages of three and seven, we basically write our own life script on what other people are saying to us, but around us as well. So, um, for a lot of neurodivergent people, if they've heard things like, oh, well, you're a bit slow or you're stupid or oh, you're a bit of a pain or you're really energetic or you're this or, 
or you're just too much sometimes like you know just any of those sorts of words or or anything like that I've heard, I don't know how they figured this out, but I've seen it on um, TikTok, so it must be true. Um, <laughs> so I'm stating my source there. That, um, and this was specifically for ADHD, that they think that they have experienced 20,000 times more criticisms than neurotypical. I don't know how they work out the math on that, but I think that feeds into that idea of of life script and you know if you are constantly um told these things and i know for myself it was what are you blind what can't you see what can't you hear shah yeah i was just gonna say well this is the things that people talk about like diagnostic labeling um but and whether people should go down a diagnostic route but all the things you're talking about there are labels that are associated with neurodivergent people anyway being told you're lazy mm-hmm. or you're, um, you know, stop being so, you know, over the top with things or why are you behaving like that? There's all these labels that you're giving anyway. Um, so when, if a diagnostic label can enable you to receive accommodations or reasonable adjustments, which it doesn't always do, but it's just, just wanted to make the point that, you know, that you are already receiving labels anyway. Yeah. And, and, and such powerful and age, negative yeah. ones. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And I yeah, really relate to the lazy or self-absorbed or, you know, just not thinking, not paying attention. Um, yeah. So so with this life script that gets written at this young age, what, what happens to that, Neil? I mean, the really sad thing is it gets, it's its almost like a, a tattoo across the foreheads that only we can see it. It's there all the time. Um, throughout my work with clients, it, it pops up everywhere um, with my own therapy as well. I'm, um, because I have to go through the process of being in therapy um, for becoming a therapist, which is, which is fantastic as well. But everything is so connected to it and going through something like cancer and which which i think everybody would agree makes you vulnerable so all of these things that which we probably put in a lockbox about like oh well i'm a bit of an idiot and i'm not very smart i'm not very clever but i'll put that way and i was working in a bar so i was like i don't have to deal with that sort of stuff it's all human emotions and that's what i was good at so um i can do that and not do any of this stuff but then it starts to get unlocked again and all this comes flooding back um and it's awful um the 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 theory is that once we start to understand those words bring them into awareness and sort of see them as they are and understand the sort of trauma that they've caused um we can then do a bit of sort of unpicking and fixing it but um instead of sort of eliminating them which a lot of people would think would be the the answer just kind of being aware that they're there and and I mean, like I said, with that study that I did, it was it was for people older than me who who really had these core beliefs that were they they really held themselves to, and the the confidence was so much lower, and it was really quite heartbreaking. And I really feel that any time I remember, I had a friend whose son, um, uh, they recently realised was di- dyslexic and similar, just the the things that were being said. Oh, I'm a bit stupid. I'm I'm not very good at. That. And I was like, oh god, this little boy but yeah yeah i i just found out about adhd and dyspraxia recently and 
wow, that put, you know, I was called clumsy and flat footed. Um, you know, I went to ther- uh, physiotherapy as a little kid because I walked funny. And, you know, because kind of everything was put down to that. And, but, you know, it was the lack of attention. That's why I dropped things. And I didn't even know the word dyspraxia existed until this year. Um, when I was talking to a physio about something and she was like, oh, like, have you heard about this? And I looked it up and it said um, extraneous um, movements such as flapping when running. And I was like, oh, that's why everyone's been laughing at me. Like literally I'd run for a bus and people would like be cracking up. Um, I had went to a hip hop class once and the teacher was actually doubled over, pointing at me, dying laughing. Um, you know, my coordination, I could do one, two, three. Five, six, seven, eight were out the window. Um, but yeah, all these things that, you know, you don't realize are a thing and you just think that you're inadequate, you know, that everyone else can do these normal things, this running or balancing or, you know, and it's just you and you have to live up to this standard. And then cancer comes along and, and just what you said, it takes so much of everyone's confidence but when you have a lower or you know foundationally maybe low self-esteem then that can be absolutely exacerbated I thought someone was trying to torture me when they told me I needed to do admin during cancer treatment I was like no (laughs) this can't be happening to me like you can't make me do a form now (laughs) I used to describe myself as having formophobia and it just literally was like my version of hell was chemotherapy and a form like that's that's hell. So I want to ask you both a bit about what you use to cope and also to explore what about your neurodivergence has been a plus for you. Throughout the whole of this uh, podcast, I've been playing with a uh fidget toy um, to help me concentrate. So it's one of the new things I found is um, stimming. Being able to, to stim um, is actually quite I, I, quite comforting. I realised I was doing it anyway with my hand. I used to roll my thumb between my fingers when I was nervous. But one of the biggest things that um, I use as a coping strategy for me are music and noise cancelling headphones. Um, being able to play my playlists, which currently I have one playlist that I'm playing at the moment on repeat. Um, I play it every day. It helps me. I was listening to music before this podcast to try and chill a bit beforehand. And I'll probably listen to music after this to try and decompress. But yeah, for me, absolutely will be music and noise cancelling headphones is the, the biggest coping technique I use for anything. And knowing that you need those things, then you can bring them into an appointment with you. Then you can have them before and after if it's something, you know, like music. I went to um, an MRI fairly recently that had like the best headphones and music. Because, you know, normally they're really bad if they have them at all. Um, But I was like, wow, they've really come a long way now. (laughs) In terms of going through cancer treatment, in terms of was it useful to have a sense of community around you? For me personally, I didn't know about uh, a lot of the, well, I didn't know about Shine until after I had uh, finished treatment. Um, I was quite lonely during my whole experience. I didn't tell a lot of people I had cancer. 
so it was it was kind of just just having to deal with it i didn't want to have to deal with other people's emotions when i was trying to work out my own and my priority was my kids um and that's what i wanted to do is to make sure that they were there but since um meeting more people who have had a cancer diagnosis it's made a made a huge difference to be able to not have to explain um certain things or you can have one minute where you can be talking um quite seriously about treatment and the next minute you'll be laughing about something then completely you know which is just a random thing and then you can go back and talk about something you don't have to explain the things to people who already get it and i think that's that's really important and um and yeah something that i didn't have when i was going through treatments but it's something that i kind of wish i did but i'm experiencing more after thanks Shah. and neil what's some of the coping mechanisms or things about your neurodivergence that are a positive for you so I think um, I mentioned the, a couple um, earlier, but I think the overarching theme is really figuring out exactly what works for you. Um, I think, like I was saying earlier, there's so many different like ways that dyslexia can affect people. Um, and so figuring out like, oh, actually, I mean, even down to the type of color you want. I mean, I, I just ordered all my notebooks and they're all pink and it just looks better and like i think you can be especially when on my course i might be writing essays or or something so like going into it and then you've got a white notebook and it's already starting to stress you out and you can't read stuff and you're already a bit stressed before you even start doing anything if you can like like help yourself going in through that process so like different colored figuring out which color might work for you so different colored notebooks and then figuring out oh no actually yeah i'd like my diary to look like this or um my brain works in this way so i'm going to do this or like just making everything really personal mm-hmm. so they um because i think well my experience of being neurodivergent is you you have a real lack of control because you feel like you're doing everything the typical way or you're having to do everything the typical way. So taking some of that back and just being like, no, like, fuck that. I'm doing that myself. Like, this is what I'm doing for myself. I'm not doing it this way. I'm doing it my way. And that's quite liberating because I certainly had never felt like that before. So, um, yeah. And I think some of the positives, um, I I never realized until I did this um, coaching how many skills I have from being dyslexic. Um, and from being neurodivergent, I mean, um, like I wrote a children's book for, with my partner for her nephew and had these weird and wonderful ideas. And then I drew all the pictures and I'm quite creative. And, and like, I was like, oh, okay, that's not, that's not just who I am. That's also maybe the dyslexia. And, and certainly with my counseling as well, um, I can feel that I'm like, well, it makes sense that I, I, I've always loved hearing people's stories and talking to people and understanding people. And, and I've never liked forms, just as you were saying. <laughs> so, um, so I'm like, yeah, actually, when I started this whole process with being diagnosed, I was like, well, what should I do with my life? Well, I'd like to do something that I enjoy, but feels meaningful. So like talking to people all day, that sounds great. And not everyone's cup of tea, but it's mine. So yeah. I think that's that's the the real thing that I would say to people is just 
um, make it your own and and figure things out. Figure things out that support you. I think, like I was saying, you can often have that where, um, where you're doing everything a certain way and it's not supportive of you and you've not started that conversation. And even the first steps of having that conversation, like how am I going to support myself? That's already supporting yourself by yes. thinking. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and that thing of once you know what you need, then it's much, you're in a much better place to be able to ask for it. And um, I know, Shard, like when we talked before, you gave a thing of actually to know what's coming up. So asking a question of, you know, not just your first day starting chemo where they're like, well, we're going to give you these drugs and turn up on this p- place. But can you walk me through what I should expect? And that's a very specific walk me through the, the process of it. That gives a very clear instruction and and you have a, a better vantage point. So that knowing what you need then means that it's much more likely that you can get there. Sometimes you might even be in a position where they might be able to change the lights. You know, you never know. But if you know that something is is really affecting you, being able to articulate that, I think is is such a massive part of it. And you know, we have such a deficit model of looking at things, but actually thinking of our differences as being um, also like a, a, a fountain of strength and adaptability because we've had to adapt to certain things. So we can, we tend to have like a lot of more resources to adapt again. Shah? With, uh, with the advocating for yourself, sometimes that can be really difficult um, and, and it's not always easy to be able to do it in the moment. And so that's one of the so piece of advice I would give is if you can take somebody with you to uh, help advocate for your needs um, or just listen to what you're being told can um, help you with processing it later on. Um, and even if that's not necessarily in person, if you're able to do that, like on speakerphone, for example, um, can help you sort of just to deal with that. And, and, and another really big one, I think, is allowing yourself recovery time from each appointment. Um, mm. It's really exhausting going through all of this and giving yourself time to do whatever you need to to help to decompress. Definitely. If you have a social battery that's running low because of pain, of treatment, of uncertainty, all those things, then yeah, knowing that you need need to take that time right afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. At Shine, everyone's very welcome. Um, you know, lots of people in Shine have neurodivergence. And, you know, I mean, maybe those those numbers that we're looking at, 15 to 20%. Um, at our conference, we had a, um, a decompression room. Um, a nice quiet space that people could go into at any time during the day and get something to drink and a little snack um, and just, you know, be able to um, regroup. Um, and we always um, are adjusting things. So if people want to have, you know, the it, before a session, if they want to read things in advance, um, that's always an option. Um, and that's the lovely thing about Shine being patient-led is we're always adapting and always want to listen to what people need. So if you want to find Shine, come along. Uh, the website is shinecancersupport.org. 
O-R-G. Um, we'd love to see you at one of the programs, the meetups, conferences, camping. There's so many things happening and there's lots of different types of things. So just see what really speaks to you if you're someone that likes meeting up with small groups, big groups, quiet spaces or really loud, you know, highly distracting spaces. It's all there. Um, and thank you so much, Shah and Neil. It's really, really interesting conversation. Absolute pleasure. And thank you to Radio Facilities for making us sound so good. And thank you to all of you. And if you have a topic that you'd like us to cover in the podcast, get in touch. Go to the website, email us, hi at shinecancersupport.org. Um, like, follow, subscribe. We definitely want you to be part of our community. Till next time. Bye. Bye. Not your grandma's cancer show.